0: To all of our fundamentalists, welcome back to another episode of Your Favorite Brown Babes Breaking Down Taboos and Dissecting Desi Culture Across the Diaspora. I'm Mehek.
1: And I'm Faiza, and today we are joined by Gina Ali, who is a queer Muslim Egyptian psychotherapist from Los Angeles, California. Gina's academic scholarship is in psychology, where she is now obtaining a PhD at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Liberation Community and Eco-psychologies. I would love to learn more about what that is. Um, Gina uses an anti-oppression framework to collaboratively work towards finding the root of pain, and as a therapist, Gina strives to intercommunally create room for queer Muslims to challenge the status quo. If you'd like to support or are looking for mental health resources, check out at Therapy on TikTok. Um, So Gina, I'd love to just jump right in. This is a topic that Mahak and I have been wanting to tackle for a while, but as like hetero cis women, we wanted to make sure that we approached it with nuance and the appropriate framework. so, really, just wanted to know about your your journey. Um, when did you know you were queer, and did you have a frame of reference, especially for people, I think from our backgrounds, immigrants, brown immigrants, Muslim immigrants, like what what was your first understanding of what queerness is, and what was what was your context for it in Arab culture?
2: Yeah, so growing up, I definitely didn't have any terminology to describe it. Um, it was very much an internal experience. And sadly, I think one of my first understandings of my queerness was actually wrapped in shame. So I noticed that other people's um, projections and perspectives of me was what I internalized and then associated with my queerness. Um, And that's what's kind of led me growing up to kind of internalize a lot of this like homophobia. And so when I talk about like internalized homophobia, it's very much the projections of others that you internalize about yourself, but don't actually belong to you. Um, and so something that I'm, I'm even just currently trying to work on is to get a better and deeper understanding of how to describe queerness, even in Arabic, because there aren't, uh, there are words, but the words that describe it, like for example, like Mifliin, which means like same sex, but it doesn't exactly describe the fluidity on the um, gender and sexuality spectrum.
1: And so you still identify as Muslim, um, and I think one of the things that I've come across, or I, I've I've seen a lot, is is the is how how you reconcile the two, right? Because in mainstream culture, it seems like it doesn't really jive. Um, I know that there is this growing movement of of queer Muslims coming out and saying we're here, we still identify, we still practice, and there is space for us. So. How did that come about for you? Was there a point of contention where you felt like your your identity as a queer person didn't really jive with being Muslim? Or was that something that you, you could reconcile internally?
2: So I think at first that was actually the very reason why I denied my queerness for such a long time as well. Um, so from a very young age, I actually went to Islamic school and I you know, studied the Quran, I, you know, wore hijab, I pretty much fit whatever stereotypically is seen as like a traditional sort of Muslim girl. Um, And then, you know, what I learned in those sort of institutions was um, that there was no room to accept a queer person in Islam as a Muslim. Um, and growing up, I didn't really challenge that outwardly because I just accepted that I needed to, you know, fit into whatever mold was around me. Um, and so when it came to sort I guess one can call coming out, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to challenging that narrative, but in terms of like coming out, um, and, and kind of getting a different perspective and new relationship with Islam, I realized that, this idea of trying to reconcile something is to assume that there is something inherently wrong with it. So, in this in on this journey is is less about a reconciliation process and more about acknowledging the you know inherent spiritual nature even of of my queerness and how um, Islam makes room for people from all different types of experiences and that's when we talk about like the Ummah, the community that is borderless that does not um you know categorize muslims necessarily by like race or ethnicity or you know physical distance or any of those things and of course we have issues in those categories but that you know as 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 a community that we're supposed to you know care and love each other regardless of these differences and that you know Learning that Islam actually inherently promotes social justice is what has allowed me to not feel like there's necessarily a reconciliation process, but that there has been a misunderstanding growing up in terms of, you know, being queer and then how Islam was taught to me. Gina, can I just say, I really,
0: really love and respect that you empowered yourself enough to take that journey on your own because I think you're right. Certainly, in the way Islam is taught in the West from a very young age, you're just taught, you know, three year olds, four year olds, five year olds are just taught the pillars, the principles, and the, to fear God. And there's this whole other side of like the mercy and the actual true beauty of Islam. And the fluidity within it, the grayness within it. Yes, it's a religion of rituals, but it's also a religion of so much nuance and so much depth and so I, I really love that you that you felt empowered and that you had the courage to go learn this and reconcile it and, you know, tread that path. I'd love to pivot back to um This idea of coming out, because one of the things that has been clear for a very long time and certainly has become super clear to Faiza and I as we started researching how we wanted to approach queerness in uh, the South Asian and, uh, you know, South Asian religion community was that coming out is such a Western term. It's such a Western ideology. This act of like coming out as a liberation is almost... um, for those with privilege, right, for those who live in these societies or structures that will um, ultimately respect and honor that decision, whereas in minority communities, certainly religious minority communities, it's it's tough, you know, to, to put it exceedingly offensively, mildly. So can you talk to us a little bit about what your journey was like to get to the point where you could openly identify as queer and just what what i'd love to know what your thoughts are on that reconciling the western ideology versus uh
2: the minority experience of it Mm -hmm. yeah definitely i mean i think something that's very part of a, a western um queer lgbtq culture is that coming out essentially like validates or solidifies your experience as a queer person. And so one of the things that I, you know, very vividly remember, especially growing up, was that I didn't even feel safe acknowledging my own queerness because the old, the first image I ever saw of queerness was like a white gay image. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. This is like a Western thing. This is like a white people thing. This is not like a brown people thing or like a POC thing um and then it was like you know eventually more people would say things like that you know like my mom or people around me of uh, that you know that's for americans that's not for us and so i was like okay so i'm seeing this like white gay image i'm seeing that you know you have to there's like an equation like you know there's that you have to come out you have to be like this very like proud type of person and over time i just realized that like coming out assumes also that You have the ability to portray your queerness in a public way safely, which is very not possible for a lot of people. And so, when coming out prioritizes visibility over safety, um, that's dangerous. So, one of the things that I really emphasize, especially as a therapist and kind of talking to other therapists who are who have a more like westernized, Eurocentric training, is that when you are working with queer clients, especially those who come from communities of color, you never want to prescribe coming out. That's not something that you want to encourage in that way, for example, if it's not safe. Um, so one of the ways that I've reframed that for myself is actually coming in. And I know that you know other folks have talked about it more um as well especially uh, there's a there's an indigenous person that talked a little bit more deeply about this but basically like coming in emphasizes that you get to let people in on that process and and it acknowledges that there is also sort of like a sacredness and a level of importance and and privacy that is associated with you know how you talk about your sexuality it's also a very intimate thing and it's not necessarily for public consumption in that way. Um, and something that I have learned, especially, you know, as a person of color and growing up Muslim in, in an Arab, you know, community is that privacy is important to a lot of us, there isn't a way in which we like, you know, hyper sexually express ourselves in that way. And so there's no difference in terms of sexuality and being able to navigate this in a in a private manner, if that's possible.
0: And privacy is a very prominent Islamic concept as well. Yep. Definitely. So can you, can you talk to us about, um, when you came out and Mm -hmm. age and what it was like for you?
2: Yeah. So around, uh, 17, so my partner and I have been together for about 11 years now. And so around 17, um, I, we were dating and, um, I was just, you know, kind of just, like, exploring my queerness and figuring out, like, what is possible, what is not possible. Um, And then during, like, a small break that we had, I decided, like, you know what, I'm feeling very, like, uncomfortable with how I've been going about um, in in my own existence. And this was, like, a very personal experience to me. So at the time, I was also wearing hijab. Um, I still wasn't really, like, you know, I haven't, I wasn't really out, quote unquote, to myself even as much. So um, was this in
0: California, Gina? Did you grow up in California?
2: Yeah. Yeah. In LA. Okay. Yeah. So um, at the time I kind of just, you know, I wrote a letter to my partner, Nelanie at the time and I like left it under my pillow and I was like, you know, just talking about stuff that I was feeling and how I wanted to come out and all of that stuff. And of course, you know, my mom beat me to it and she found it. And I was like, Oh, shit. Okay, so now I have some explaining to do. Um, So she found the letter. Uh, It was very clear what my intentions were in the letter It was very clear who Melanie was. Oh, she's not just your friend. She's this person that you've been dating and seeing romantically. So um, my quote-unquote sort of coming out experience was a very non-linear process as coming out typically is not a linear process. Um, and so um, at the time, my mom was, you know, very hysterical. She was very upset. She was unsure about what this means in terms of like, you know, do you not want to get married then? Do you not want to have kids? And so there were their very core traditions that she was very scared about giving up, which I understood. I have a lot of empathy for the fact that, you know, the way we are socialized in terms of things that are important within our communities, when our families, when we come out, in a sense, our families have to like do that too. Like they're participating in that process as well. Um, And so yeah, coming out was definitely not a linear process. It was challenging, it's you know, constantly this thing where you come out to different people at different times or you choose not to come out. And so um, something that I just want people to know is just how much of a non-linear process it, it, it is. So um, not feeling this you know, pressure to perform in any particular way because it takes a lot of time to become even just comfortable with yourself around your sexuality.
1: I think that's super important and it's an education for me as well to, to to understand that it's not a linear process because of how it's been portrayed in Western media, especially that you have this awakening and then you're like, I want to, or I need to accept this part of me. And in order to do that, I need to come out and it's, it's, I'm, I'm liberated and I'm free and I'm living my most authentic life, but that's not always true because it's a question of safety for minorities and immigrant communities. Um, and I remember the first time that I was introduced to the idea that this is very much a Western concept was when in, in my South Asian studies, uh, cl- like w- class and in, in way back in college, we watched a movie called fire, which is amazing. If you haven't watched it, it's it done very well. Um, and they never name it because it's set in India. It's about, it's these two women and they never actually name it, but you know what it is. And it made me realize that there is this very rich tradition of queerness and especially in South Asia, where you look at, back at, pre-Hindu pre ideology being codified, or if you look at hijras in Pakistan, the trans people have been uh, uh, there and alive and recognized for hundreds, if not thousands of, thousands of years, right? Not even hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, and it's not questioned, but as soon as you bring in this Western concept of labeling and identifying and, and um, putting a name to it is when people are able to, then say it's wrong right or this is different or this is very much a western concept we don't do that here we don't have homosexuality but it's there and you've been in living with it and it's in your scripture and it's in your on your television like how, there are Pakistani dramas with hitchers and there's no problem with it right um but i wonder because when i was talking on instagram you have in your bio you mentioned decolonial psychology so I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how, how much of your sexual identity or, or being queer um, impacts or affects your approach to your therapy practice, your psychotherapy practice. And what does deep colonial psychology mean and why is that important in the context of the work that you do?
0: And if I can piggyback and add more homework to your <laughs> plate, Please, go did, did your queerness ultimately affect your career path? Um, Or do you feel like you were going to be a therapist one way or another?
2: Yes. So, so many great points and and questions. I'm like, where do I start? Okay. So um, when I did my degree in clinical psych for for my master's, the one that you need to basically practice um, therapy, I went in uh, because I saw that there was a clinical psych degree with LGBTQ affirmative therapy as a specialization. Um, And at that time, you know, which was still only like a couple of years ago, I was still, you know, struggling a little bit with my identity, trying to figure out, you know, uh, how is it going to be even like when my mom comes to my graduation and she's like, oh, you know, my daughter is doing this like LGBT degree and this is like all that she's doing. Like I, I kept feeling like that's what My entire life was gonna be, as opposed to that I am just a queer person doing this work, but no, not now, like this, this is kind of like attached to me now. Um, So I was still kind of struggling with it, but as, you know, I grew more into my queerness, as I grew more into um, this work that I was doing, I realized that the reason why it's such a staple and essential and, and centralized within my work. Um, as a therapist is because there is a huge lacking of LGBTQ affirmative therapy um, in the field of mental health. Whether we are talking about, you know, from a Westernized standpoint, this very like sort of Eurocentric um, psychology, which is what I would call like colonial psychology, um, or if we even look towards um, other countries. So if we think about like the Muslim world, A lot of the therapists there that are trained are actually trained under Eurocentric psychology. So the tactics and things that they learn, um, for example, when we think about gay conversion therapy, people will think of the Muslim world and be like, oh, well, of course they want, they implement gay conversion therapy because they're so backwards and all of this stuff. And it's like, actually... Gay conversion therapy was invented by a German scientist. This is a European import, it's a colonial import. So if you have a country that, countries that are over exploited, under resourced, you have therapists training under this framework and you put them back into their country, they're gonna work with whatever they have and that is what they have. And so I'm, I just kept seeing this sort of like division between the work over there, the work over here and so, what made the most sense is like so what does an approach look like that challenges all of these frameworks and all of these narratives and so a decolonial psychological approach feels much more liberating because it challenges all of these very like eurocentric psychological frameworks that basically what so what decolonial psychology is and and i also kind of want to pay a tribute. To some folks that have made it possible for for me to get this understanding so one is dr jennifer muller who um founded decolonizing therapy you can find her on instagram um she's done a lot of amazing work she or they i think it's they um they have done a lot of amazing work around this and so they are one person um uh, martin Barrow, the founder of liberation psychology has also been someone who paved the way for me um and so Decolonial psychology, essentially what it is is that it moves away from this colonial framework and that basically categorizes our unmet needs under capitalism as a mental illness. So basically like it is your responsibility to resolve your mental health issues even though even though we live under a capitalistic system that makes it impossible for us to have our needs met. So when we think about houselessness, when we think about food insecurity, uh, when we think about um, lack of mental health resources, all of these are a cause for our our troubles, anxieties, and all of these things. But what um, colonial Eurocentric psychology will do will be like, no, no, it's just your childhood. You just have to, and you just have to resolve these issues, and you will be fine. Um, And so that's one. Another thing is that um, decolonial psychology moves away from. Uh, sort of like diagnosing the effects of colonization and and categorizing it as a mental illness. So whatever the effects of colonization are that, um, translates into intergenerational trauma, how that is stored in the body, all of these things, um, rage, the, the pathology of, of women's anger, all of these things that are in, for example, the diagnostic statistic manual for a long time was like hysteria, the diagnosing like women's rage, um, um, having homosexuality as a mental illness, in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, all of these things were created by quote-unquote Americans and Europeans and all of these folks. Um, And so essentially to kind of sum all of this up is that decolonial psychology requires an understanding of interdependence rather than individualism. It relies on an anti-authoritarian and non-hierarchical relationship between the therapist and the client. So it recognizes that it is somehow a mutual energy exchange, as opposed to assuming that the therapist is like an expert that I know about your life, which is, to me, very poignant of what white supremacy is and how it manifests into every single field It's like, I'm the expert, I know about you, and I'm going to tell you about you.
1: So, I'm a little on. bit
2: shell shocked right now <laughs> know, because as
0: like a thirty six year old who considered i think i'm thirty six right um oh, who considers to, herself to, to be-, be lot, you counting yeah okay. you know as as a thirty something year old who <laughs> considers <laughs> herself to be mostly intelligent and functional most hours <laughs> of the day um this is brand new to me, like this concept, especially what you said about this mutual energy exchange between the therapist and the client, my genuinely mind blown. I had not mm. even considered it and like what, what that does to the course of the therapy and what you take away from it when you start on that imbalanced playing field, mind blown, mind blown. genuinely mind blown. I have no question.
1: I, so, I yield oh, yeah. i yield my time <laughs> so i yeah this is I, I, one i want to say thank you for your anti-capitalist greed because i go on one every episode and anyone who's listened knows i do this at least Hold once so thank you for doing it um mm. it always comes back to capitalism man it's fucked mm-hmm. us over two this reminds me of why I manured in women and gender studies, because I find this shit so fascinating and how layered it is. It isn't or our identities are, are a matrix, right? It's not just one thing. And when you're a woman of color and, and then you layer on your identity as a queer woman or, you know, whatever it is, it just compounds mm-hmm. itself. And it layer and that lay, those layers bring on different types of trauma. And it's just, yeah, it is, it it is mind blowing, as Mahek said, especially because we consider ourselves like woke women, (laughs) (laughs) like we're like middle, you know, like they're older millennials and younger millennials, and we're like middle aged millennials, you know, so we're, we're in the, we're still in the zeitgeist. Um, But it is, it's, it's also really interesting that that is uh, becoming more and more available because we see this a lot with um black women not having access to therapists who are also black mm-hmm. and what a difference that makes and so there are not a lot more resources coming out for for black women to access mental health resources and that kind of thing that it, be, it is very much therapy is very much um looked at as a as a privilege and that it's mm-hmm. for for white people um, who are born with their suburban lives, but it is very much something that I think everybody should, as somebody who's been in therapy for a number of years now, is very important and has actually experienced that kind of power dynamic that made me not want to go back to a particular therapist because I felt judged and I felt like there wasn't this cultural competency there and that I'd have to sit there and for the mm-hmm. first 30 minutes of my one hour session have to explain to her my background, growing up Muslim, growing up Pakistani. It's really hard because you're already starting at such a, like, a, you're at a lower level playing field and then you have to bring this person along this journey instead of getting into the work because therapy is work. So, I mean, thank you for that breakdown. I think it's super important. I am like, I don't even have any questions. I'm still processing all of that. That was amazing. No, um, def-
2: I mean, I just want to say that like, yeah, it is very emotionally taxing and exhausting to be in a therapeutic relationship where you are constantly explaining yourself and explaining where you come from, or it is seen as sort of this it's, it's this very like fetishized, exotic, exotification process that happens as well of just like this interest that is a, a curiosity for, for the therapist or for the person that is supposedly deeming themselves as the expert and less about, you know, having it be a mutual healing process in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I just want to echo that, you know, exhaustion that I know a, a lot of clients go through and that I myself as a client of therapy has also had to go through and then once I found someone that you know I could I could learn from both um, as someone who is healing and a healer at the same time that's where the mutuality of the process is too it's this notion of expectation that a healer is supposed to just know, Without, without receiving he, receiving healing or that the healer process isn't also about healing as well at the same time. Um, that's, that's something that I really um, try to challenge. So yeah, I, I just, I echo um, all of this. In addition
0: to Faiza's uh, capitalism or anti-capitalist tirades every episode, we also like to rant about how much representation matters, right? And I think this is case in point prime example um because that that mutual benefit can't fully happen until you have a diversity of, or uh, diverse perspectives or a diversity of uh, perspectives in the field. And so like this this idea, what you're the decolonial psychology, if we had only ever had, white Eurocentric psychologists, it wouldn't come, right? And so the Mm -hmm. this, not at all to imply that the work is done or that we're on the other side. I'm sure there's decades, generations to go to get there. But I think having people from different walks of life, different races, different genders, different sexualities, different religious views, um it really makes all the difference. It really makes all the difference for people who are looking to benefit from some sort of healing. It's not going to be a slam dunk every time, but some sort of healing.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I definitely agree with that. And that's exactly why liberation psychology, you know, it has been uh, really one of the, Biggest frameworks that that I'm learning right now when it comes to decolonizing psychology, because liberation psychology basically allows for for a uh, for a psychology that is not just for oppressed people, but from oppressed people. So again, you know, kind of like the the mutuality of things um, is that you can't just have a, a practice that is for a group of people without including the people that are being affected by it um and and that's why you know i i feel these conversations are also extremely important because once we have more more of us within a community because even within a community we are very diverse we we have different you know uh different skin colors we have different um you know sexualities genders all of these things and so when we kind of put all of our brains in one basket and collaborate in that way, intercommunally is when we even move the wheels even faster. Um, And so oftentimes when we think about um, friction within communities, we don't see that this this is a product of colonization. We see that, oh, you know, brown people just hate each other. They just talk shit about each other. Like you know, they're, they're and and then it becomes like a show for white people to watch us basically like fight with each other. But in reality, it's like these are all products of having our needs unmet, of intergenerational trauma, of colonization. And so when we use a decolonial framework intercommunally and we put all of our brains together, then we can actually move healing. A lot faster and we can work towards the bigger target, which is like working against white supremacy, working against capitalism, um, using tools that have been here for a very long time and reclaiming it um, into our own communities to actually support each other.
1: And I think sp- speaking of representation, is something that Mike and I have talked a lot about in different, in relation to different topics, is uh how social media is really like a blessing and a curse, right? So like I didn't grow oh, yeah. with social media, but we, the blessing is that you can find, especially as minorities, you can find people who look like you, think like you, who are going through the same experiences as as you are, and you don't feel as as alone like you know I did growing up in like a in white suburbia, New Jersey. Um, but then there's the, the, the curse, which is that it also can be incredibly exploitative. And it also allows people to, to project a lot of their own bigotry and hatred on you. Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, you, you're active on Instagram, you're active on TikTok. What has been, what have been the response really generally? Like what's been the most surprising? What's been the most challenging? Um, we found you through Instagram on what is it? The Queer Muslim Project, um, which is like a, doing great work. Uh, but yeah. what has your, what has your, your experience been with that, with social media?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question, uh, because it's very active and alive right now. Um, so, you know, TikTok started as like a very just simple thing of, oh, let me just make a video, see how it goes. I'm like just enjoying the, the ways that people are on this app and the type of content that's being created. Um, just people are kind of just nicer on TikTok versus any other apps that I've been on. In general, like there, there's a lot of support. But the other side of the coin was when I started to see that there was also a lot of uh, bullying that happens on the app. Um, Unfortunately, the Haram police really has like a very strong presence on the app. It's like you could literally be doing anything, literally anything, and somehow there is a critique about your existence. Um, And so that's when the intercommunal conflict comes up that really, really like rubs my gears the wrong way because I'm like, we should be sticking together and supporting each other, but instead we've just become like a shit show on this app for people to watch. And that really, you know, makes me uncomfortable. So I've had to set some pretty firm boundaries when it comes to how I navigate the app. And so one one of those boundaries is that I don't engage with them. Um, you know, the trolls, the internet trolls, people who just have comments for the sake of commenting. Um, I don't engage with them. And I know that others do because they're trying to, you know, maybe reclaim their power or or, or make a point or something like that. But I try really hard to avoid that. Um, So that's one of the boundaries that I've set. And that Another thing is I want my page to be a place of healing. I want people to come to my page and feel like there's something relatable, like there's there's nothing to be ashamed of. There is space for you to grow and exist in whatever layered identities that you have. So um, as much as it has had a lot of negative you know, qualities, it's also been very supportive in that it has brought communities together from across the globe. Like some people, sometimes I go on live on TikTok and people will check in and be like from countries that I never even really heard of or I had never even like thought of deeply. And so it's just amazing to see in terms of queer Muslim visibility that we exist on like every part Of the planet in different forms and ways. And, you know, just being able to gather in that way in a virtual space, especially through, you know, COVID right now, um, it's made it a lot more of a safe place for us to create little containers um, for ourselves to be able to kind of gather um, communally in that way.
0: You know, I will say something um, that I've really been noticing over the past year or so is despite the horridness of social media at times. It really is, like you said, possible to cultivate um, some semblance of positivity in your little corner, right? And two people that really come to mind who I think have done it really well are Lily Singh and Alicia Keys. Like two people who really radiate just positivity just good energy. And like you said, just don't engage. Not to say that they don't get hate, not to say that people aren't trolling them for no goddamn reason whatsoever. Um, but I think by not engaging, you really put out the fire. You know, you take away the oxygen that some of these faceless yeah. trolls have. Um, and Always it- faceless. Yeah. And at some point, then they just give up, right? Because so much of it is just about getting that reaction, getting that rise out of you. Not to take away from people's right to defend themselves and clap back at D bags, because absolutely, it's your page. You're mm-hmm. able to do that. But I'm just saying I've noticed that people who don't are able to cultivate this really um, nice little mini space of positivity. Um, since you are giving us so many life lessons, I'm going to ask you for a couple more. I'd love to hear your thoughts and advice that you would give not only to other um LGBTQIA people in minority communities who may either be struggling on their journey or reconciling, especially for Muslims, reconciling their faith, but also to the parents of these people, mm-hmm. because I think that's it's it's very easy to say how narrow minded, how closed minded um you know, how could you cast out your kid or disown your kid? But I really love what you started this conversation with about having so much empathy for your mom because they don't know what they don't know. And all they know is what they were taught. And they, were, they weren't they were taught Islam as a fluid religion. They were taught mm-hmm. very much like, this is the Quran, you memorize it. I don't care if you understand it or not. Like, here are the rules, you have to pray. and You know, there was no... um Nuance, really, to their understanding. Nor was there encouragement to go find that nuance. So I really mm-hmm. love that you spoke about the empathy, and I, I'd love to hear um, what what advice you'd give to parents in not just Muslim communities, but minority communities at large, as to how to navigate this with their kids or with whoever may be that they need
2: to support. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is that before we Can have empathy in that way, we do need to do some healing first because I can't give you something that I don't even have for myself. So, my first lesson, you know, and I have to speak from my own personal experience is that um, I needed to accept myself, I needed to extend compassion empathy, uh, an endless well of self-love towards, back towards myself. All of that was sucked out of me and, you know, uh, controlled by my external environment. I had to kind of reclaim that back and do healing. And that can look like many different things in many different ways. It can happen in community. It can happen in therapy. um, It can happen, you know, in whatever spiritual capacity people have. So that's that's one piece that I want to really really emphasize is that doing your own healing, and then on this journey recognizing that um, we as a community, uh, m- many different communities. I mean, we are all uh, we we are all victims of of these larger systems at play. You know, regardless of the different intersections of our identity, we all have suffered under these systems, and so. Regardless of who you are, being able to gather up whatever uh, compassion you have, what, whatever uh, well of patience that you have, to be able to navigate these conversations because they are very difficult. There is nothing in life that is wrapped in a bow um, and is given to you, uh, except, you know, we know the privileges that are. But in terms of like when it comes to family, when it comes to relationships, to acknowledge that relationships are very challenging to navigate. There is no such thing as a perfect relationship, whether it is your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, with your partners, your spouse, your friends, your work buddies, like all of these relationships are very complex. So having the patience to be able to repair conflict, to allow conflict and discomfort to arise in order to find some sort of resolution, um, and just remembering that we, we we all have things that we need to work on when it comes to our relationships and that these systems in play have made it that much harder because we also live in a very individualistic society. So if you come from a collectivist culture, remembering that Everybody plays an important part in your life, in the collective, in the community, in the family, um, and recognizing it for what it is, which is that it is very important for a lot of people. And so, patience is going to be one of the like main ingredients in in, in all of this.
1: Um, my question is something that you mentioned earlier, and I think we kind of take for granted. But this, the idea around intergenerational trauma, and which you talk about, which you just talked about I think is uh, really important to understand is that especially for South Asian or people who are Pakistani Indian is that the, our parents and our grandparents went through this insane civil war and that isn't talked about um, and then that trauma, that unresolved trauma and passed down to our parents and then our parents pass it down to us and that's why we're all anxiety ridden <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, yep. um, unable to 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 process triggers and things like that. So I think it's really important that we like are able to name it and, and extend that compassion to our parents as well. And that empathy that you spoke of so eloquently, I think that's really important for, for, for our generation to understand.
2: Absolutely. Um, I just want to completely echo that. And, you know, these traumas are are stored in our bodies. um, And the only way to heal from that is to really go inwards and, and do that work um, and understand that our parents may not be able to do that work in that way. Um, they they reach a point in time in their in their life where priorities are different, their the direction that they are looking in is different. And so um, being able to to accommodate that, to understand that um, the traumas that we work through and that we you know may uncover, it may not completely align in that way, but Another important thing to remember is that even just one person changing in your family, breaking generational traumas, whatever you want to patterns, whatever you want to call it, can completely shift um the narrative of of your family and and whoever is to come after that. Um, so that's something that I really just want to emphasize as well. So true. So true. Um,
0: basically, every single sentence you said on this episode has been a major life lesson. So thank you for that. But <laughs> what, are, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from your experience over the past 11 years, both on your journey uh, to coming in with your queerness, but also um, the work, the incredible work that you're doing? And what do you hope that people take away from this conversation? I mean, Fiza and I are taking everything away.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty much, you know, the last 11 years has been, um, so much unlayering and uncovering parts of myself that I probably would have never been able to discover or uncover, um, had I not been on this very particular journey. And so, um, for myself, the way that I see life now is that everything is aligned in a very particular way, and that every step of the way um, is, is there for a very specific reason. And just because you don't know that reason in that moment doesn't mean that it do, it's not connected to a larger purpose. And so I think my spirituality has also allowed me to become more connected with that because of, you know, the ways that we do talk about destiny and stuff like that, especially in Islam. And so I think that for myself, across the years, um, I've allowed whatever needs to surface to surface. Um, I try not to to control any, I mean, we, I'm not gonna say that I don't, but you know, just an, an active, intentional attempt to not control things to go in a, in a specific direction, because I know that there is um, that there's a reasoning behind it. Um, and so for myself, really, like at the at the end of all of this, in terms of like this, this period of my life and where I'm at right now in this moment, as I'm talking to you both, um, is just like a deep gratitude um, towards myself towards the people around me towards this journey for all that has come um, during this time, and just a whole lot of compassion for all the things that I've had to experience and that I didn't need to, but I did. Um, And so allowing myself to just work through that grief, to not be resistant towards changes that are coming forth, even if they're uncomfortable, I don't really know what is what is completely behind it, but just like allowing it to to surface in the way that it does, I think has been one of the biggest learning lessons thus far in this entire experience.
0: Gina, I can't imagine the difficulty of this journey and just the sheer emotional strength it, it must have taken. So Who have been your teachers uh, throughout this experience? And I don't mean that in a traditional sense. I mean, like your support system, whether they've been there throughout or, you know, come and go. Who have you relied on to give you the strength to keep digging deeper and keep unlayering?
2: I, I love that question because it it, it feels very uh, decolonial in nature in respect to what we are talking about because uh, I told you I'm listening to everything you're saying and I'm learning. Meg is a very fast uh, learner. <laughs> um yeah because again you know the West uh, pushes individualism and and the self as you know I'm self made and it's like you there, there are people that were a part of that journey, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Um, So yeah, the, that that question is really important to me because I think one of the first people um in my life that has taught me a lot of the things that I probably didn't understand until I do now, until now has actually been my mom. So it, which is interesting because, you know, we've had a lot of struggles and tension and, you know, discord around my sexuality, but that again, I am not all just that. And so there have been other parts of my life that I have, that she has been there for. um, And so, you know, the, the intelligence that she holds, the, the, the very spiritual nature of, of her soul, the, you know, all of the, all of the strength that she had, to basically endure this world that we live in, this whole new world that she had to move to, um, I learned a lot of my own life lessons from her. And so she's been one person who throughout the way, you know, always making God for me, always praying for me, always, you know, putting out these positive vibes for me to, to be successful. And And that's something that I've really held on to. And I think a lot of diaspora kids do too. And so, uh, and, and my partner, someone who I met, you know, very early in my, like, you know, exploration of, of my queerness has been someone that, you know, has been like a very, a very important person in my life and like a huge support system and, and very much like a rock around a lot of these things that, that have happened. And so her and the other, you know, queer friends that I've made throughout the year, the queer Muslim community that I, you know, have been a part of since, you know, the, the, the inception of my, you know, coming out journey experience, all of that stuff. And so I think having all of these people, part of, of this, of this experience has allowed me to feel grounded enough to advocate even more for the folks that, do not have the the resources and access to healing that i have had um so you know i i try to continue to be that voice in whatever way possible i I hope to to always you know give my my respect to people who don't have that at this time but hopefully i am able to empower folks to find their voice as well at some point incredible really 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 just incredible
0: it's again. Um, Fiza, lessons learned from you.
1: Oh man, I was really hoping that I could uh get to it before you did because I need (laughs) to kind of
0: think. I can go first,
1: yeah. I just want to one quick one quick thought that I had, Gina, on what you were saying. I think it's you cannot understate the importance of a community of support, whether it's family you're born with or family you choose. Um, and that this. we really need to especially as as minorities push back against this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps that you alone can um, chart your path or you're responsible for your own success and that mm-hmm. the only way to really make it is have is to have done it yourself like that's not true. and the system is not designed to allow people like us who look like us to succeed um, mm-hmm. and so you, you gotta you got to make sure that you're open and vulnerable with the obviously the right people, but reach out to your support network, build a support network, and continue to strengthen that support network. And then also, of course, extend that, pay it forward with as much compassion and empathy as you can. Maybe that's my lesson learned. Is that a lesson learned? Yes, let's right. say it is. But I, honestly, I think I've I learned so much just through this conversation. Um, it's something that I've been very interested in from back um, in my like Rutgers. University, Douglas College days when I was minoring in Women and Gender Studies, like this, this is fascinating to me on so many levels, especially because I'm a brown woman, grew up Muslim, and I'm always interested in unpacking all of these structures and systems that seem to not benefit. I can't think of the word, um, the opposite yeah. of benefit. People like us, <laughs> whatever that word is. Um, So this is definitely, I think, a a very, very interesting and um, awesome conversation. I thank you so much for for bringing this, like that level of genuineness and authenticity and and vulnerability to the conversation. Mehek, what is your lesson learned? learned?
0: No, yeah, yeah, thank you. No, I, I echo everything Fiza said, and I just want to say, I don't think we ever sound especially poignant or intelligent, but, man, we sound some like some serious Neanderthals
1: <laughs> compared no. to you right now. No. <laughs> Dummies up in here. Imbeciles. No, no. Um,
0: my lesson learned is, you know, like Fiza said, this has just been – so enlightening and jokes and hyperbole aside, every single sentence you've said has carried so much clarity um, in it. So I, like Visa said, I thank you so much for your candor and for your openness and for your vulnerability. Um, and my, I think my lesson learned is More than anything, you know, Fiza and I started this podcast as a means to just unpack aspects of the diaspora and issues that face the minority community, um, hoping that people could relate to it. But this season, especially, I have just been blown away by the people we've been able to connect with, people like you, Um, because whether anybody listens to this and get something from this, I feel like each conversation we've had this season has genuinely, truly affected me and affected my worldview in some capacity. So that's my lesson learned that this podcast is for us and not for anybody else.
2: <laughs> Way to bring it home. I, I, I love that. And I, I just want to say, you know, thank you to you both. And thank you for your solidarity and for, you know, the space that you've opened up for, you know, marginalized voices to be able to name the things that, that we experience. And, you know, I, I just, you know, we need more, we need more allies. We need more people in solidarity with us. And so I, I hope that people take from this model and, and apply it um, in other aspects of their life as well. It's the very least we can do. Gina, where can people find you? Um, So mostly TikTok, uh, Queer Muslim Therapy, very easy to search. Uh, My Instagram is linked there as well. There's some resources linked in the bio as well. Um, So you can uh, go ahead and find me there and, and connect with our larger Queer Muslim community.
0: Thanks so much, Gina. Uh, we really, really had a fantastic conversation and we appreciate you being here. So that's it for Thank this episode, you guys. guys. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can check us out on Instagram at The Femme for the latest episodes, behind the scenes,
1: and more. And you can find new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.